Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi, it's Michael McAnutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. This week's episode is an excerpt from a discussion I had on how healthcare payers are leading the charge toward health equity. Joining me on the conversation, Daniel Rivas, Senior Manager with Blue Shield of California, and Kirk Johnson, Vice President Operations with United Health Group. But we welcome conversation and we welcome uh, communication and questions in our chat um, as we kind of go through this journey with uh, Dan and Kurt looking at how payers are in a very prime position to really change and make a difference in terms of health equity and, and addressing health disparities. Um, in my conversations with both of you and in my research prior to putting all this together, I found something interesting when we were talking Um you know, with United, Kurt, uh, you know, it, it's no secret you have a, you know, the ability to acquire and have and be able to analyze a lot of data. Um, uh, and you mentioned that, and I, I read that in, in articles, and um, it's something to be very proud of. And then, Dan, on your side, one of the things you had said was, we don't have access to a lot of data. So, you know, talk about, and you just kind of did, but talk about the importance of data and how you are doing things and how accessible data is for you. Um, you know, Kurt, what do you do with that data? We saw the dashboard. Also, I know that United Healthcare is working on incorporating SDOH data into the EHR. Um, but Dan, on your side, while the data is not front and center, how do you go get the data? And that'll lead to our next question. But go ahead, Kurt, you first and then Dan. Okay. Well, um, being that I'm the data side of the organization, I would say data is critical, right? To really almost everything we do in healthcare, I think data is the, the foundation, just knowing um, kind of member level data and what the needs are, because I think every member gets treated differently. So it has been critical. And I probably have a different answer if you were talking to me uh, when I first joined this team four and a half, five years ago, which is um, we didn't have a lot of data then. But I think our, our approach um, has really helped us uh, grow that, which is we didn't really start out relying on kind of public data. We really started saying, okay, what do we know about our members that they've self-identified and how do we grow that? And so what we've really done is we've taken all the, all the data points we have with members and we tried to expand um, kind of full social needs screening into that as well as gathering demographic data as well. So if you, if you just think about, especially more on the government side, the regulatory side, you've got health risk assessments, right? We leverage opportunities on health risk assessment to screen people. And uh, we, we leverage, for the most part, a prepare-like or an industry standard-like screening of different needs that members have. And uh, so all those touch points, it could be someone's calling into our call center to ask about something. If they haven't been screened, we know that from our system, uh, in the last six months, we'll, we'll offer the opportunity to screen them again for some potential um, assistance we might be able to provide them. Uh, we use touch points um, like we do in-home uh, visits, things like that. So basically, we really expanded upon this self-identified member level uh, information, which I think has uh, helped us. So as you know, last year, 2022, we ended the year with um, several million members uh, being screened. So we really scaled that up. And I think we're kind of operating at scale now. And so I think the um, that's critical. And then I think the second thing and really where we move next, now that we're at scale of knowing what our members needs are, what do we do with it, right? So we help them, we've been assisting them, but what else can we do with it and how do we integrate it? So this year I'd say, and uh, a little bit of last year is building on that is how do we integrate that more? And so you mentioned EHRs. So how do we, how do we make sure that um, everyone that has touch points with the members, not just within the walls of UHC, 
um, when they're helping the member know what we know about them, right? So how do we share this with providers? So how do we do bi-directional sharing of social needs with providers and things that we know? So I think that's the, to me, that's the new frontier is that full integration, anyone doing care management, how do we share enough with a community-based organizations, you know, that we have consent to share? How do we share with um, the, what I would call the, the traditional providers when they're assisting our members as well as the, the focus link of the data? Excellent. Now, Dan, you come from a different side, you know, so, so talk about how your perspective and how it's unique and a little different from how Kurt uh, handles, you know, data in general. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was interesting because we, we have tons of data. But a lot of that is old school data that's around claims. And we had to really think about, can we even use claims data for, for health equity? And yes, we could, but we didn't. What we found were a lot of gaps around our real SOGI data, race, ethnicity, language, sexual, uh, sexual identity, right? We didn't have that to give us a really good picture of who our members were to really hone in on the, on, on the conditions and address them by population. So we had to find the gaps, right? Look at our internal data, find the gaps. What did we need? Um, we, we, we ended up um, using imputed data. So we tried to fill in the gaps using algorithms to help us find, get a better sense of, of what the, our member makeups were and, and, and what their communities needs were as well. And then we went externally. We looked at partnerships with, um, uh, uh, it was in my sidewalk who helped us build community health needs assessment uh, uh, platforms unite us. We're working with find help to help us do some of those assessment collections. But then we also, you know, leveraged our partnerships in community, one with our providers, two with our community based organizations to help encourage them to to report some of that information or encourage our members to to self report um, and submit that information that we were missing because race, ethnicity is on every contact form you can imagine, but it's optional. So again, it was also um, uh, making sure that our members, that our community understood the value of, of, of the data. And I heard on one of the previous sessions on, on, today's, on today's agenda, um, excuse me, uh, that when we don't have the data, when there's that digital divide because we're not submitting data, people get left behind. And that's what we're ultimately having to remind our members and our member communities that when it's optional, fill it in because then we have the, the information to build programs to address and, and understand the, the needs of the community, including social social drivers of health. Excellent. Before we go any deeper, and Dan gave me the perfect segue into collaboration and partnerships, Erica has a question, and it's toward Kurt. What were the public data sources for those uh, maps of Georgia that you shared, Kurt? Yeah, actually, the maps I shared, um, that's self-identified data. So that would be like UHC data. Um, I don't think there's any kind of timeline or snapshot of exactly which members of ours that that it's representing. Um, but there's really there's no public data involved in that uh, at all. We do, however, leverage public data um, in combination because um, there are places. I mean, and I think that's my biggest worry. We may get to that question <laughs> later, Michael. But my my biggest worry is really around um just like Dan was saying is that, you know, we, we also look at claims and ICD-10 codes coming through claims and things like that for additional information beyond kind of the self-identified. Um, it's very low today, right? The the amount of claims, it's like, I think within our claims, it's like 0.43% of the claims show up with an ICD-10 code that's in that S2H range of Z55 through Z65. So it's growing. 
I think last year it was like 0.4. Now it's 0.43 or something like that. So it is increasing and we want to see that increase further. Um, but uh, so we, we, we bring in additional data um, from kind of those type of demographics and things like claims. But we also bring in population data and it could come from just the census data. Um, there's a lot of good census data out there. Um, the ACS uh, surveys have a lot of data in them. So we bring that in as well. We do. Um, it was interesting, Dan, uh, when you were mentioning all three of the vendors you mentioned, we work with as well. Um, find help and unite us not as much on kind of population type data per se, more referral network uh, activity. But like my sidewalk would be one of those things that, you know, there, there's organizations like that, that, uh, that have available kind of this extra population data. But I would say the census, the census data is a really good uh, starting point for, for some of that. As we mentioned in our planning calls, all roads lead to Rome. So uh, very excellent. Like it, it all leads to data and how you acquire and how you interpret and how you analyze that data and fill in those gaps. Um, it always helps the community. Uh, Dan talked about um, partnerships and collaboration, and I wanted to kind of go into that for a little bit. Um, and Dan, you, you mentioned uh, in our talks previous um, due to this with kind of health equity and looking at communities, the term provider has had a larger meaning than, I guess, what we would traditionally call in healthcare. Um, I'll start with Dan and go with Kurt. Um, along with the traditionally defined providers that we know of, uh, discuss how you've been able to partner and collaborate with community entities to make a mark in those communities. Um, what are particular takeaways? And I say that because, um, Dan, I'm, I'm sure you saw a couple of previous sessions, especially maybe yesterday's, where having people on the ground that look like us has been kind of a underlying theme for the past two days. But first, let's talk about um, connecting with those unique providers and how is collaboration helping you uh, more so in the community? Yeah, I mean, so many great points. I might, my, my, my brain is running around trying to figure out which one to touch, but really quickly, I think we might discuss this later, but part of that is also including the, the diversity of our providers, right? The, 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 the um, making sure that our providers, just like we have in ground um, uh, connections or in community connections that our providers look like those communities that we're in. Uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I, I think Janice asked a question that really, um, resonated because our our approach to health equity is acknowledging that we're not the trusted messenger, that there are cultural community um, uh, challenges with seeing us as a trusted messenger. And by us, I mean payers because, right, you know, be, whether claims were denied or just the historical um, uh, systemic issues around me me medical systems and institutions. Um, so there are some challenges when when we say something to our, our member, to our member communities that do, doesn't always land correctly. So what we said is like, well, then let's let's figure out who those trusted messengers are. And yes, a lot of the times it's providers, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's those it's the care team. But in many other cases, and I came from nonprofit world, so I was I was an outreach worker. I was out in, in you know at one a.m. doing mobile testing out in in communities. Those are the trusted messengers, the organizations, the health work community health workers um, in community. That's what we really uh, built our strategy on when we were trying to reach our our, our members. And one, one example, a program with, with a platform called Harmony Health, um, who helped amplify the messages of our, of, our, of our trusted messenger CBOs, 
around COVID-19 um, was a, a huge success. So for COVID-19, we really wanted to be in community providing information and content that communities were asking for. I know they were tired of, of, of payers and, and providers saying, come get vaccinated, come get vaccinated. But nobody was was, was initially um, responding to their questions about safety, about, you know, cultural, cultural stigma. So we said, let's identify organizations in our member communities that are already doing this work, that are building the content themselves and help amplify that message. We don't need to create anything new because somebody's already doing um, that work that connects to those communities. So let's lift their work. Let's amplify that messaging. And um, Harmony Health was a great way of doing that because they had they came in with this. It's it's people were trying to to compare it to constant contact, but it was more than that, right? So they they worked with the community based organization um, to send messages and videos and content. Um, and also share with other organizations through their, their content library um, messages that resonated with those communities. They have a platform that also allows these CBOs to really hone in on their communities by zip code, by ACE, by age, <laughs> race, or gender. If, if the community, if the community based organization has, um, the data mature enough to do that. But anyways, um, you know, it was really connecting the high tech of the platform with the high touch of the community based organization that was successful to us. And I think that's a perfect mix, right? Technology with in-person uh, connection. Definitely, definitely. Kurt, your thoughts are uh, definitely taking these kind of big ideas and partnering with people that are in the community. Tell us a little about United's journey in terms of partnership with community based organizations. Yeah, I would say for for us, um, it it all starts with the data, and I I appreciate Dan's comments on the 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 data, and then turn it into more of a high touch, right? But I think the data leads us to where where should we focus? Where are our members? What are their needs there? And we have pretty good information on the needs that we're able to address. I see some comments uh, in the chat around what can you address, what can you not address. We we do have pretty good information on that from the people that have needs that we try to assist today, and we also see those that. Um, we, we try to help and there, there's just not something in their area or, you know, where they went, didn't give them the assistance they were looking for. So we do get that feedback from our members. And so we, we tend to know even at the community-based organization level um, where our members are kind of reporting, they were able to get help. They have high satisfaction with kind of even the CBO. Um, so they give us that type of feedback. And so for us, we can then start to look at that and say, okay, First of all, where are we sending our members, right? Like, are we overwhelming some organization in some place that they don't even know where all these people are coming from, but we're helping connect them, right? Because some of, some of the CBOs are integrated and they know what's coming from us. Some of them aren't, right? We're really just connecting members and they're, they're going there um, on their own. And so I think for us, we, we know where we send people and just really knowing that, okay, we're working with an organization that, you know, honestly, we're sending thousands of people to for help. We, we probably need to work with them, right? And we need to make sure that they know where they're coming from and what more can we do to help and, and have that discussion with them. Um, we also see the organizations where we're not seeing high satisfaction scores, right? I think that's good feedback they should understand. So I think for us, it's um, it, it's really understanding where the gaps are and the needs that we have uh, within our members and then kind of expanding that to the community to say, okay, what what is going on in this community? And the one thing I would say is, um, and I can't speak in real good detail about it because it's not my exact area, but there's a lot of things that it's not just like our team or even just UHC doing with the organization. 
It could be that we're working with customers, right? Or we're working with other organizations in that community once a community need is identified. So it could be that we're working with grocery stores or, you know, Best Buy or some, you know, some other organization that happens to have a lot of their own employees in that community that we've just said, oh, we've identified this as a community. What can we as, you know, uh, other businesses with a lot of stake in the, the area do to help? So I would say it's not all just UHC working with an organization alone, right? Sometimes we're partnering with other other people that have um, uh, a stake in that same community exactly. with either employees or members. Exactly. Now, now I'm going to jump directly into the chat and ask some of these questions because there's some really good ones out here. Um, yeah, Janice, we've had a lot of conversations and seen different opinions on whether provider or payers are better situated to collect SDOH data and provide programs to meet needs. Can you talk to the pros and cons of a payer-centered approach um, versus one designed operated by providers. I'm not sure you'd be able to offer the provider side of it, but you know what makes the payers uh, in such in such a unique position to do what you guys are doing. Well, Mike, Curtis, can I can I take that one real quick first? Um, so I, I think I, I it also goes to the question that you just asked about providers, right? Where where we need to expand the definition of providers, and I, I didn't really touch on that, but. Um, because when we talk about care team, the care team expand is expanding out of the clinics, right out of the practices for walls. And so when I hear that, I think Janine asked that question, I, I really appreciate that because there's no wrong way of getting that data, right? And I think that's what we have to look at different entry points into accessing the data with the key being the democratization of data and how do we share that data uh, across each different stakeholder so that whether it's coming from a provider, whether it's a CBO or a, or a clinician, that they're going to be a trusted messenger, but that there's bi-directional sharing of that information because that's the best way, uh, I mean, to utilize the data. There's no wrong way, right? Whether it's coming at the, the entry point of, of a member filling in their application or at the visit uh, of a social care or social service organization, it's about how do we share that information and, 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 and have standards, which, we, yeah, I'll stop there. If you don't mind me just piling on a little bit, Dan, I would say um, I, I don't think it should be one side or the other, right? Like, I, I think it's this combined approach, like you were saying, and where earlier I mentioned kind of the integration. So how, how do we make sure that there's bi-directional uh, data sharing? And I think with some members, the they're what they consider their provider, they have a um, a closer relationship for. So they might share more things. Um, I do think what can help that is that not everyone today is using the same uh, type of screen, right? So sometimes we see where someone may, they may ask a very general question or they may ask only one or two questions. So they haven't done what we would, what we would tend to refer to as a full screening. And so we want to rescreen, right? Because of that. So I think um, those standards and moving towards those, and I see a lot of that happening in the industry um, so that if a provider screens, we say, oh, the member's been screened. They found out everything. We don't need to rescreen. Um, I think that would be a great place to be. And I think we're headed that direction. The other, the other thing we see from providers in some cases is that they do have the bandwidth to screen. They don't have the bandwidth to help. So they, they will do the screening and they will do a full screening. But when it comes down to, okay, now we identified these needs, they don't have, you know, some do like the FQHCs and stuff. They have community health workers and other people can assist with that. A lot of providers do not. And so that's where we've seen really 
good collaboration is providers that are doing screening, identify needs, and they want to make sure something happens to that. And they're sharing that with us to do then the follow-up and the support. So I think there's good, really good collaboration. I think I don't think it should be a, a one or the other approach. I think it needs to be a, an integrated and then kind of industry aligned um, interoperability someday. That makes sense. And Janice wanted to ask another question, and this is regarding data and maybe the process of analyzing that data. How much time do you spend on identifying the cause of a need versus just that it exists? Uh, her example was assuming the main cause of food insecurity is financial means. So she says that, you know, it's hard to know how to help someone address it. There can be a tendency to assume a cause rather than gather, record, analyze them. So, so is there a particular process once you get the data, then you can start seeing what the, what the issue is, or is it just, you know, based on pure numbers, just look at it. Oh, that's the problem. So, so what's your process in identifying the quote unquote problem? Do you want me to jump in first, Dan? So I just have a quick one and this always comes to mind. So when I joined this team, um, we were doing some screening assistance already. And one thing that shocked me is that we, I was expecting this very, I came out of an operations background a lot, right? So claims and other things I'm seeing, it's a very just sequential things happen, right? Things come in. When I came over here, I was I was shocked to see that we would identify members with a food need, right? Because they would check the box on an HRA or in a discussion, they would check that box. But we didn't help them with a food need, right? We helped them with something completely different. We helped them with transportation or something else. And I was expecting this, just the categories of need and the categories of what we assisted them with and we closed the loop on to all be the same. And it wasn't. And and the process, I think, pulls that out, which is we, we have this, the screening is the entry, right, into, okay, now some, you've identified something, someone's going to help you. But the navigator type people that we have that do the assistance, they're kind of trained in empathy and they pull more information out, right? So I, I always call it like a deep dive. And so they may, it may come in that I have a food need and they really look at it. And the, the problem is this person doesn't have transportation to get to the grocery store, right, or to bring things home or that they just have an underlying financial need. And oh, by the way, they're spending all their money on something else, right? Whether it's uh, drug, um, pharmaceuticals, you know, those kind of things. And there's some other program that they're qualified for, like say a low income subsidy that may help fund um, their prescriptions. And so that frees up money for a food. So I, I think it's that, um, I don't know that it goes fully to your question, but I think that uh, it, it's it's really a deep dive afterwards to understand what is the underlying need and try to address that. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times, and it's, it's a lot, it's not, it's not just infrequent. It's, it's, it's a lot of them where the, the assistance is completely different than the box they kind of came in checked with as far as a category of need. For us, it really, it, it's tough because we try not to make assumptions. We try to identify reasons for, for a root cause, right? What, what, what's, what's driving, for example, the food insecurity issue? Is it geographically remote areas or rural areas? Is there a food desert in, in, in even in a, uh, an urban area? Um, and then, you know, we co-build, we co-build solutions with those communities. I think that's going to be key for us is that when we identify possible reasons for the, the, the need um, or driving the need that then we build out a solution because, you know, when, when I look at LA County specifically for us, we have areas like Antelope Valley, which are very rural, have high, high food deserts. Um, but so does, so do areas that are populated like Inglewood, Compton, Torrance, that you do have food deserts. So are there, are there solutions that we can build with, with the community in mind and with the community for them 
that'll help us address the root cause because it's not going to food insecurity, you know, to, to the question is going to look differently based on region and what happens in LA may be different in San Diego. But if we can identify food insecurity as a high level issue and, and then start to build in community with population, the solutions, I think that's how we'll be able to better have an impact on, on addressing those needs. It's, and, and whether it's food access, transportation may be one of those things, right? Where transportation in the Bay Area, public transportation at least gets you places more more readily than, than in LA. But um, so those are the, the pieces that we also look at um, to, to address the, the need. Excellent, thank you. Uh, we're coming up on our final uh, question and the final uh, seven minutes. So uh, feel free, you're welcome to, I'm not obligated, but after your session concludes, feel free to stick around in the chat. There are a couple of questions that we'll probably not be able to answer, but Sylvia addressed one that uh, I definitely wanted to ask. Um, when addressing equity and community health, how do payers measure value and return on investment? Um, uh, is it short-term, long-term? Uh, as Sylvia says, how do you maintain focus on patient needs when it may be difficult to, prov to prove financial o ROI? Um, must the traditional success markers need to change when working in health equity? Yeah, I can take that one um, first. Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. And Michael, you and I had this conversation because ROI value has to change. We have to, we, you have the traditional HEDIS measures, met success metrics, right? You know, uh, visits per year that, that are going to show impact and health outcomes. But when you talk about health equity, there's we have to change how we view value and ROI for the organizations and, and the payers. Um, it's no longer about just checking off a box. It's about the impact we're having to the members and the members finding value in the services and solutions we, 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 we build with them. Because, you know... It, when you're starting to build new systems, new solutions that members may not be used to, part of the value is, did they engage, right? That's number one. And when you talk about digital, increasing access to digital platforms, was adoption, you know, one of your su success metrics? Because it should have been, right? It, you know, just, did they even use the app? Because then you really you really have to change on how you measure success in, in a lot of the health equity work because it's not going to be your linear process. When you're looking at a whole a 360 environment um, that you have to address for that individual's health, it, it, it's not a straight line. It's not a straight line. And they're going to come back to that touch point, whether it's a community health worker, a navigator, or their, or their clinician. They're going to come back to that touch point uh, for um for ongoing needs and so ultimately i'll leave it with that that our, our roi needs to needs to evolve and how we see value needs to change to um to the work that we're doing today and not how it's been done yeah i um i agree that i think we have to we have to kind of grow with with the work um the good the good news for me at least on this team for the last several years is that um, i would say from a leadership perspective it's the right thing to do right so we're doing it However, um, you know, as you said, that we we do look at financial things. So the good news is we we can show things today, right? That that are of value. So we, I mean, if you look at the things that we measure across other parts of the company as well, like if you talk to the members that we assisted them, and we were able to, you know, we were able to kind of close the loop on their needs, they have a much higher NPS score, right? Um, which what does that lead to? Probably leads to a higher retention, right? 
and things that that do impact the bottom line for helping and retaining members because they like this level of support and assistance they are receiving. So I think those are all positives along the way towards that um, broader ROI. Um, I think the the um, uh, the other the other thing we look at is I mean going back to kind of just the baselining is that you know we always see that sixty to eighty percent of health is driven by social needs, right? And with that, I think there's this expectation that if we're able to help with those, we're really having um, further down impact. Now, short term, it doesn't always look like that. Like short term, it could be that um, we we have members that we see that they're never met adherent, right? And we find out through our screening that they have transportation issues. So we help them get transportation. And guess what? Their expenses actually go up because now they're getting their medication, right? They're making it to the pharmacy. They're making it for their doctor's appointments, things like that. And their actually expenses go up short term. And, you know, we, that's kind of built into the model that we expect to see some of that. It's not, it's not to just help somebody with their social needs. Their, their immediate expenses go down. Sometimes we drive. We, we want to see that though, right? We want to see preventative care. We want to see med adherence and, we want to support those things because they're, you know, they're known to have long-term uh, positives for the member. Uh, Kurt Johnson with United Healthcare and Dan Rivas with Blue Shield of California. Thank you so much for giving us this unique perspective on how payers are uh, leveraging their data and leveraging, you know, their kind of position in healthcare to really uh, dis- uh, address health disparities, prevent disease, and encourage health and digital literacy. So thank you very much for being a part of the spotlight. Thanks for inviting me, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us, and be safe.